Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. My name is Ben Craven and today we're joined by our new senior fellow, Dr. Michael Johnston. Hi, Hello. Michael. Hi, nice to be here. Michael, we thought uh, we'd get together and have a bit of a podcast about your background. Um, we're very pleased to have you joining us at the initiative uh, and wanted to have our listeners learn a bit more about you and what you'll be doing. Certainly, it's, I'm delighted to be here and very excited, yes. Uh, so... Michael, you've joined us from Victoria University of Wellington. There you were the Associate Dean Academic at the School of Education. And I see you've got a, a PhD from the University of Melbourne in Cognitive Psychology. Uh, what were you doing at the university there and how does it align with what you'll be doing here? Well, it's, it's a, a long and circuitous road to where I've come to, but uh, everything seems to tie together over time. So... Actually, probably the story might start at Monash University where I did my honours degree in psycholinguistics and in particular how people recognise words visually when they're, when they're reading. And that played into a, an interest in literacy more generally and during my PhD I worked as a research assistant on a project on dyslexia which is a particular developmental problem that some children experience in learning to read. And my PhD itself was in visual object recognition, so how we recognize three-dimensional objects, even though they can rotate in space and therefore project different images onto our, our retina, which is the light receptive surface in our eyes. Right. Uh, and I became also interested in memory and attention, so other, other kinds of aspects of human information processing and and storage. So is it all about how we take stuff in, how we perceive things in, in the real world and then make sense of it? Is That's that, right, is that and, and what we can use them for and, and so on. And so I, I, I worked for a few years at Melbourne University after my PhD uh, in, back in psycholinguistics and then I came back to New Zealand oh, nearly 20 years ago now and I worked at NZQA from about 2005 through 2011 and I arrived at NZQA at a very interesting time because it was after NCEA had been implemented for a couple of years and there were a few problems emerging. Yeah, I would have been one of those guinea pigs myself. I <laughs> uh, see, yes. Well, yeah, and guinea pig is probably the right word. Some strange things happened. So there was what I call the, the great variability crisis, which was all kinds of variability in the results of NZQA's assessments for NCEA for example, massive variation across New Zealand scholarship subjects and the proportion of candidates who are getting uh, scholarship success. So, so does that say that in certain courses there was uh, a lot of people meeting the benchmark or surpassing the benchmark, and in others there, what people Hard, just weren't hardly making the any, grade? Hardly any. Right. Not, not so much courses as subjects. Very few schools run courses for scholarship as such, but, but you've got the right idea. The, some subjects had something like 30% of their candidates getting passes and others as few as 2%. So right. that was all over the place. And then within the NCEA system itself, there was huge variability from one year to the next in terms of the proportions of people gaining credits for various standards. And this actually led, I mean, some of the listeners may remember, led to a, a huge crisis of public confidence very early in the NCEA experience. And... Uh, Many heads rolled, including the, the chief executives, and, and then the State Services Commission came in and published two fairly damning reports on the, the way things had been done. 
And I have to say, they should have seen it coming because uh, certain academics like uh, Professor Cedric Hall and Warwick Alley and Reg Marsh had published papers prior to NCEA being implemented, pointing out that if they didn't have appropriate technical support for the new system, then it, it would produce these kinds of problems. Um, and they were ignored, and then these problems did in fact manifest, and then belatedly NZQA were more or less forced to face up to that. So the organisation was restructured, and new chief executive and deputy chief executives were appointed, and I ended up working very closely with Bali Hark, who was the, the deputy chief executive who came in to look after the technical side of the implementation of NCEA. And because of my statistical background, Bali adopted me as a fairly close associate and, and we worked through a whole lot of problems over the next six years. I have to say, you know, I think we got a reasonably long way in addressing the technical problems. I, I think there are still some educational problems that reside within the NCAA system. Was it one of those situations where had they done the work that you were doing prior to launching NCEA, the system would have been a lot more robust to begin with? Yes, yes, it would. All right, so That's you right. kind of felt like uh, ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. <laughs> yes, well, it was almost. I mean, it wasn't tear it up and start again. That yeah. that would, but not at all, because all the work on the, on the development of the standards themselves was still in place. But the way in which exams were marked had to be reformed. The way in which internal assessment was conducted and moderated had to be reformed. There are still ongoing issues with variability in the in the internal assessment and, in fact, grade inflation where we're seeing more and more excellence uh, to ridiculous extents in some standards. Right. But, yeah, so it was all that kind of technical work that we were doing. So what was the main problem there? Were the courses too easy or were teachers no. able to kind of teach to the exam? Uh, we have to carefully distinguish between courses and the assessment. So it's not really about the courses as such, it's about how, how they're assessed. And it's not necessarily that things were too easy or too hard, it's more a matter of calibration. So for internal assessment, for example, you've got literally thousands of people, teachers across this, the country, all assessing uh, what is supposed to be the same standard. Now that's a fiendishly difficult thing to get consistent. Yeah, I'd imagine. Uh, and and to this day, there isn't any check on whether teachers have got it right before results are published to students. The check is post hoc, where, where moderators will collect samples of work and check them against the standard and then give teachers feedback. And the idea is that over time, this will help to calibrate teachers. There's no real evidence that it has, to be honest. Uh, but. The, the moderation system that was in place before we did this work was in fact even lighter on. It was just giving some qualitative feedback to, to teachers. So that remains a problem, the internal assessment system for NCEA. The external assessment system is now pretty tight. So we don't see a huge variability from year to year in individual assessments for particular standards. So it's a lot more consistent. Yes, it is. Yeah. Fantastic. And I think I think the, the, the real success story has been New Zealand scholarship, which is now a very robust system indeed. Great. Now, fast forwarding on to uh, your time at Victoria University of Wellington, what were you focusing on there? Well, my work at NZQA was where, where I got into the science of psychometrics. So that is how we measure things like what people know in a particular subject. And so at that point... My interest in educational matters was very technical. 
Now, after these reforms had been bedded in, I didn't have any great interest in staying in the public service. I wasn't interested in being a, a sort of business as usual public servant. It was the attraction of that job was kind of fixing a problem. So then when I moved to the university, I started off still working in that kind of psychometrics area, but I quickly got interested in the impact that assessment has on education itself. So the way in which teachers teach and students learn. And you, you alluded to it yourself a, a moment ago when you talked about teaching to the test. So the fact is that whenever you have an assessment that students and others value the outcome of, that will happen. So teachers want their students to succeed in whatever assessment you have. So it's a fool's errand to think that you can design a high stakes assessment system that won't have a, a backwash effect on teaching and learning. It always will. And so the trick is to get that right, to get it to have the right backwash effect. In other words, to promote the kinds of behaviours that you want students to engage in, in order to learn the material that you're presenting in sufficient depth to, pr to support further learning uh, and in a way that is appropriate to the kind of knowledge that you're talking about. And, and so there is a bit of an art and a science to designing assessment well so that it does that. So you want assessment to be quite broad uh, and touch on a lot of aspects of whatever subject or course the, the students have been learning, right? Yeah, whatever subject, course or discipline you're trying to inculcate. So, you know, for example, one possible mode of assessment is a multiple choice test. Mm. Now, if we want to assess something that is, say, propositional knowledge, it's just stuff that students have to know in, and know it pretty automatically, you know, th there might be a place for that kind of test. Uh, you just need them to know, for example, you know, the names of a whole lot of organs in, in biology or something like that. Yeah. A, a multiple choice test will motivate students to learn that information in, in a, a fairly automatic way so that, you know, what we might call rote learning. Maybe there's a place for that with that kind of knowledge. But of course, that's not enough. If you want people to understand things conceptually or to follow processes, say, for example, in mathematics, you want them to solve problems then a multiple choice test isn't a very good way to, to assess that because there's no way really to capture the thinking process in a multiple choice test. Exactly. I'm kind of uh, scratching my brain here and try, trying to think back to all these tests I did uh, when I was at high school. And the teachers or the assessors were very keen to see the working involved so yes. not just not just the answer but how you got to the answer to understand the process yeah and I guess there's a couple of aspects to that one is that ideally you want assessment to be formative that is to say you want teachers to be able to use the information that they gather through assessment to feed back to students in terms of what the student still needs to learn where their gaps are what they need to do to to progress uh the other is, as I've already said, you want the assessment to be to, to be designed such that it promotes and motivates the kinds of behaviours that will result in the best learning. Right. Okay. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean what uh, what what I was just saying. So, if it's if you want them to rote learn propositional knowledge, then maybe a multiple choice test is is a good thing. Sure. But if you want them to make an argument, whether that's a mathematical argument or or an argument in written English or whatever then you need to give the, the scope and the assessment for them to go through that process. We might also think about 
time limits. So if you have an exam that puts time pressure on someone, that might, again, be appropriate when the knowledge that you want to assess should be learned in sufficient depth that it can be recalled pretty automatically. Okay. And that might be, again, propositional knowledge or even conceptual knowledge. It might also be a process like doing algebra, a, a sort of circumscribed set of algebraic skills, for example. But if you want them to solve difficult problems, then the time limit is counterproductive because mm. it puts undue pressure on to solve a problem that might require insight within a circumscribed time. Right. And so there, a more project-based approach might be appropriate if you really want somebody to be able to grapple with the, the intricacies of a problem properly. So what you've just said raises something quite interesting for me. So I've always kind of thought that teachers in assessing internal standards, I mean, it's kind of like, a, a you know, okay, has a, has a student done well? Have they passed? Have they got the right answer type thing? I thought it was more of a, a box-ticking exercise there. But really, they have to understand the thought processes the working out the processes that got the student to that answer. Um, so there's a bit more to it than, than at least I thought anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And it depends on your purpose for assessment to an extent. If all you care about is can they come up with the right answer so I can credential them, Yeah. then you know maybe the workings don't matter. But that's a very superficial use of, of assessment. We have to do it, of course, because that's how we get qualifications. Mm. But as I say, that's a superficial use of assessment. If we want it, if we really want to harness its power to improve learning, then it needs to provide information, as you say, the way in which a student has gone about doing something, so that a teacher can help them correct erroneous approaches that they might be using, and so that we can fill in gaps in their knowledge. And again, we want it also to motivate students to learn or to engage in, in behaviours that will result in the learning to sufficient depth. I think mm. something that's really not taken sufficient account of in assessment in general, and this goes as much for university assessment as it does for NCEA, is that it's quite rare that an assessment is really the end of the road in terms of learning. Right. And so we need to make sure that when we credential a student as having achieved a particular NCA standard or a particular university course, they're set up to cope with the next one that, yeah. that, that one rests on. It's a proper stepping stone. Sorry, that rests on that one. Yes. Yeah. yeah. What's your understanding of how New Zealand assesses courses, uh, conducts assessments in universities? Is it as robust as other places overseas? Is there an issue there that needs to be uh, rectified? Um, or are we kind of world leaders? I don't think we're world leaders, but neither do I think that the way it's done overseas necessarily sets a very high bar. I, right. I think that university assessment the world over is pretty ad hoc, to be honest, it, because, because academics are not trained to be educators. Yeah. They do PhDs, and, and that's a research qualification. And... To be sure, we want our academics to be good researchers, so that's an appropriate thing for them to do. But, but the teaching part of it is something that is really learned on the job. And some academics take to it very well and do, and do an excellent job as teachers. Others probably would prefer to concentrate on their research and perhaps do a more minimal job on their teaching. Mm. But one thing that academics are really not trained to do and which you can't do very well unless you are trained 
is good assessment design. Right. And certainly there's been some improvement in terms of academics now being expected to moderate their assessment results with one another to make sure that people are not doing crazy things in terms of awarding grades that are far too lenient or far too tough or whatever. But really it's, it remains pretty ad hoc. And so I, don't, I wouldn't say that university assessment anywhere is necessarily all that robust. I mean, in some places it probably is, but it's more by accident than design or because you have people who really have taken it on and thought it through properly. Sure. One thing uh, connected to that, and I guess you've mentioned it just beforehand, was about the uh, the idea of grade inflation. What mm. what causes that? Is it just a a um, meeting of incentives? Yeah, yeah. Incentives, because okay. everybody is incentivized to want higher grades. Obviously, mm. students do, so they'll they'll push for you know leniency, and teachers and educators do because they want to see their students do well. Institutions do; they'd like to be able to report great success rates in their degrees and their in their qualifications and so on. Governments do for similar reasons. They want lots of qualified individuals. And so there's very little to push back in the other direction. Right. And so you do need to have mechanisms to constrain things from getting out of hand in that, that kind of way. Yeah, I was watching a documentary recently saying that I think before before the Second World War, there were very few people with PhDs, very few people with degrees in general oh yeah um and then all of a sudden there was a massive boom it strikes me as being quite strange that a lot of people with uh maybe like a, a ba or bcom uh, a lot of the stuff they learned in university they probably could have learned on the job anyway well that may be true but one thing that we need to think about if we're thinking about university degrees in particular is what they're really for so undoubtedly they have some vocational application they, they should have mm. But that's not necessarily their primary purpose. Right. If you do a BA, you're not necessarily looking towards a particular job. I mean, people may go and work in the public service or they might do a further qualification, such as a teaching qualification. But really, the the role of the university is a cultural institution, or it should be. Now, you know, we could get into a long conversation about what's gone wrong there, because I think a great deal has gone wrong in terms of internationally, not just in New Zealand and not even especially in New Zealand when it comes to universities fulfilling their cultural roles, uh, to acting as critic and conscience of society in a robust and even-handed way. I think an enormous amount has gone wrong. But that is supposed to be the role of a university, uh, as opposed, for example, to a politic, which has a more directly technical or, or vocational purpose. That's a good point. So, you know, we let go of that at our peril, I believe. And and there are, you know, commercial incentives that push away from it being a cultural institution towards being a vocational one. And, and I think that's a shame. Mm. Absolutely. Now, fast forwarding to present time, you're here with the New Zealand Initiative. What are your main interests going to be? Uh, what are you likely to pursue in the next year or so well there's a massive amount to do so education's extremely broad it's extremely broad and, and there's a, the, there are many things that we need to address in in our education system so i'm spoiled for choice in a way but uh, i think one of the first things that i'd like to look at will be something on the environments in which our, our children are learning right so there's a big push at the moment from the ministry of education 
to establish what they call modern learning environments. Now, these many some of our listeners might be familiar with them because they may have children who are learning in these kinds of environments. These are large classrooms, uh, often with multiple teachers and much larger numbers of, of children than uh, might be traditional. You know, perhaps 20 to 30 would be the traditional size of a class, and now it might be 60 or 90. Really? That large? In very large areas. That's and, incredible. And with kind of multiple things going on, so the, the children are not all sitting doing the same thing at the same time. Wouldn't that be quite distracting? Well, I think for, for many children it is. Now, I'm not sure that there's really that great an evidence base behind this push in terms of the efficacy of these kinds of environments. Yeah. So that's one of the things that I'd like to look into is why the Ministry of Education is pursuing this, how it's monitoring the success of these kinds of things, what kinds of problems some children may be encountering. So, for example, there's quite a an explosion at the moment in children being diagnosed with something called auditory processing uh, disorder, which is not actually a hearing problem as such, but a problem of auditory attention. So being able to attend to particular auditory signals in a noisy environment. So they just can't pinpoint them type thing? or Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, it's it's like if you're, if you're at a party and you're trying to listen to somebody and you're having a conversation with them, yeah. you might be able to hear them perfectly well, but there's a lot of distracting influences, perhaps, you know, other people's conversations or loud music or something like that going on, which might not stop you hearing as such, but it might stop you attending quite as well as you might. Now, if you're in a, one of these large environments and there's lots of children doing lots of things, mm. then that's very distracting for some children and they, and they actually have a problem attending to what's going on in front of them or, or, the, or the source of information that they should be attending to. I'd imagine if you had one group of kids that were doing some sort of deep reading of a little novel or something like that and then another group that were singing or excited about something, it would be terribly distracting. Very distracting. So, I mean, whether somebody's got this auditory processing disorder or not, you know, none of us operate that well in, no in, a, in a noisy environment. Exactly. Uh, th this is something from, you know, what I might call the science of learning, which, which does come from cognitive psychology, which is my, my background that we were discussing before. So how we deploy attention, mm -hmm. how we filter out irrelevant things and hone in on the things that we're supposed to be able to concentrate on or that we need to concentrate on at a particular time, how we switch from one mode to another if we need to attend to different channels of information simultaneously. We can't do it simultaneously. We need to, to switch rapidly. You know, people talk about multitasking, and in fact, we're no good at multitasking, any of us. Uh, some people say men can't do it. Women can't e either, actually. Right. There's no difference between men and women in this regard at all. Is that but right? Once you get down to the science of it, no, oh. it's, a, it's a bit of an urban myth. But um, in the end... Noisy environments are distracting. So if we, if we want to be able to concentrate deeply on something, we need quiet conditions to do it in. Now, some people may be better at filtering out than others, but in the end, it's not optimum for anybody to have a whole lot of racket going on when they're trying to concentrate. Fantastic. Well, that's, that sounds really interesting. So that's one thing that, that I'd really like to concentrate on quite soon. Yeah. Uh, now, another is uh, literacy. Oh, of course. So building on, the, on top of the previous work that the initiative's done? Yes, indeed. Yep. Yeah, that's right. So um, there was a recent report from, from Steen uh, Vitebeck, Vitebeck yep. recently uh, on 
the way in which we're teaching our children to read and how it's actually not working very well. Yeah. And we have seen a couple of decades of data from PISA showing ongoing decline in, in, in the attainment of our, our young people in, in literacy. It's now really this, concerning. It's, it's hugely concerning because, uh, you know, of course, we, we need a literate population to, to be a productive population, but also, even more crucially, access to the curriculum broadly depends on literacy. Exactly. If it's children a, a, don't learn to read reasonably well by the time they're about eight or nine, they're going to be hugely impacted in terms of other educational attainment. It's and such it, a foundational building block, uh, isn't it? And it's it, it's beyond a tragedy. It's actually a scandal. Yeah. If only if only people knew. Right. Is there any, any other particular interest aside from literacy and the uh, learning environments? Well, I am very interested in the science of learning more generally. Great. And, you know, one thing that I might look ahead to doing is thinking about how our teachers are prepared when they're being trained to understand the science of learning so that they can use that in their teaching. So how you ensure that a child has learned something in sufficient depth to support further learning is, is a really big thing. And things like the need to automatize certain information, certain knowledge, so that cognitive resources are freed to grapple with the next part of what needs to be learned. Is it just committing something to memory so it's, yeah, it's on call? I mean, it, there are different levels of depth to memory. So that's the kind of thing that we need to take on board. So we have a short-term memory. Yeah. And so we're, we're having this conversation now and, and we're using our short-term memories to, you know, store what one another is saying so that we can figure out our response and so on. But then, you know, 10 minutes later, we will have forgotten the details of what we were talking about, even though we'll remember the, the broad gist of the conversation. But then there are, there are levels of storage that are more durable, long-term memory and, and, and so on. So it's making sure that things are well enough stored in long-term memory so that we don't have to be constantly holding things in short-term memory, which is an attention-intensive activity. Because if we have to do that, then that takes up the cognitive resources that we need to concentrate on the next thing we need to learn. So... This happens especially in things like mathematics. Okay. So mathematics is a very hierarchical discipline in the sense that one concept depends on having learned well a whole lot of previous concepts. And so unless we've learned those previous concepts in sufficient depth, when we're trying to take the next step, we're, we're still going to be grappling with having to work out things that we should have automatized Right, And then our short-term memory gets overwhelmed. Yep. What we call the working memory gets overwhelmed. And that result, and everybody's does, because working memory is actually a very limited capacity thing. Yeah, And what results then is a confusion. And that's demotivating. And it, and it ends up with a whole lot of people thinking they're no good at mathematics when actually what's gone wrong is the way in which they were taught. I and probably it, needed that at school. Well, not only you, <laughs> probably 70, 80% of the population right. think that they're bad at mathematics and they're not. It's just that when they were being taught, they were hustled along through a process of learning too quickly or without making sure that the foundations were solid before progressing. And that, this, again, is, is, is a tragic thing because it leads people to have 
actually lifelong fear and loathing of mathematics when actually they could have had a very different experience had they been taught differently. So, well, there you go. <laughs> and that's just mathematics. This, you know, there are, this kind of idea can be applied across many different learning areas depending on the structure of the knowledge itself. So that's another thing I really would like to get into at some point. That is fascinating. I guess we had probably better leave it there. It sounds like there'll be a lot more to follow up with on future podcasts. But uh, for now, uh, welcome on board. We're very pleased to have you here, Michael. And thanks so much for giving us a bit of an oversight about your background, your career and interests. Well, thanks for the conversation today. I enjoyed it immensely and looking forward to getting into the, the work here. Thank you. stay up to date with our latest research, opinions and events, sign up to our weekly insights newsletter at nzinitiative.org.nz.